Welcome to another Sustainable Wine podcast. My name is Toby Webb. I'm just introducing this session we held at a recent conference, the Future of Wine Forum, on the 26th and 27th of November 2020. This discussion you're going to hear took place on November 26th, and the conference was sponsored by the British Standards Institution, Chateau Leube, Toro, DM France, and Control Union. Thank you to all of them for their support. In this opening session, uh, we are discussing... Can we agree on a global definition of sustainability in wine? It features David Horlock from the British Standards Institution, Anne Jones from Waitrose and Partners, Lara Vapasso from Alco Inc., uh, and Karen Kreider uh, from the ICL Alliance. It was moderated by me, Toby Webb, and uh, I hope you find the discussion illuminating. If you'd like more like this, please do check our podcast channel or our website. Just search for Sustainable Wine and you'll find us. So we're here to discuss can we whether or not we can agree on a global definition of sustainability in wine. And uh, joining me is Anne Jones from Waitrose, Laura Vapasso from Alco in Finland, and Karen Kreider from ICO Alliance, and of course, David Horlock from BSI, the British Standards Institution. So I'm going to ask all of our speakers just to do a 30-second self-introduction, and then we will begin with some opening statements on the topic in question. So, um, Anne, as I can see you, why don't you start with a 30-second introduction on who you are and what you do? Good morning, everyone. Delighted to, to join you all. Thanks, thanks, Toby, for the invite. Um, I am Category Manager for Beers, Wines and Spirits at Waitrose, which is a UK supermarket, premium UK supermarket for those who aren't, um, aren't aware of us. We have a very broad global wine range. Um, I look after effectively everything that isn't buying that requires subject matter expertise. So all of our events, our content, but also sustainability, working with our unpacked scheme where we've recently tried to do some refillable wine, but all in all looking at the interface with the rest of the business. So uh, hopefully you're all aware of Waitrose, but if not, we do overtrade quite significantly in wine. So we are a relatively small supermarket, but with quite a large influence in wine. Thank you, Anne. David. Yes, hello, everybody. Lovely to be here. My name's David Horlock, uh, English parents, born in Thailand, raised in Australia. I'm an agriculturist, former agronomist, uh, been involved in the supply chain and the tick sector and, and developing of the standards and uh, certifying companies for um, the last 30 years or so. I work for BSI. Those of you that don't know BSI, BSI was set up by Rural Charter about 100 and 18 years ago to standardize, harmonize, uh, ensure sustainability and reduce costs. Uh, we're a non-profit company. Um, we were the founding members of ISO. We still are very active in developing standards. We pump out around 1,700 standards every year. And uh, we were involved in the initiation of uh, perhaps the top 20 voluntary standards used in the world today. So thank you, Toby. Thanks, David. <laughs> Tell us about yourself. Yes, hello everyone. Um, um, I come from uh, Alco, which is the retail monopoly of, of Finland for alcohol. Everything that's above 5.5% in alcohol content. Um, and uh, my job as the sustainability manager there, I suppose, is a fairly typical one. So it ranges from everything related to our um, store chain, 364 stores and, and a web store on top of that. And then the, the assortment and the environmental considerations there and um, uh, something about logistics uh, developments and, and 
you name it. Um, a little bit more perhaps about ALCO. Uh, so we at the moment have 6,600 wines, uh, more or less, uh, from 45 countries. Um, and last year we sold about 50 million liters. And being a monopoly, of course, is a bit special. And uh, so uh, it really involves, for instance, equal treatment of all suppliers and producers. And also we have very strong limitations regarding marketing, being, being a monopoly, but also from the Finnish alcohol law. So that's why we in uh, 2017 launched something called the green choice in our product data and product markings to inform our customers about, of course, the traditional ones like organics, for instance, but also the sustainability certifications and, and that we, we are probably going to discuss today. Yes, absolutely. And I would recommend to everyone that they uh, Google that, uh, that particular part of your website. I think it's really interesting. Uh, and a really uh, fascinating innovation to look at. Um, finally, last but not least, Karen Kreider from ICO Alliance. Great, Karen. thanks, Toby. Um, I'm Karen Kreider. I'm the executive director of ICL, and ICL is a, a nonprofit. We define codes of good practice for um, credible sustainability standards and systems. So it's it's a really globally recognized framework for designing and implementing those systems. Um, rather than set standards ourselves, we work together with uh, standard systems that are ambitious and collaborative to help them improve their impacts, help them be more effective, and most importantly, help to address the critical sustainability issues facing the world in a collaborative way. Great. Thank you, Karen. Well, as you can see, we have some uh, variety of interesting experts here uh, to comment on this complex subject and then we're going to take some questions from the audience so do post them in the chat function but again keep them short uh, and i'll be able to to access them the chat function box is quite small so do keep your questions short and sharp if you can although i appreciate this is a complex subject so what i've asked each of our speakers to do is to make some opening remarks of a few minutes please keep it to, to a few minutes um, on this most complex of topics can we should we agree on a global definition of sustainability in wine. Um, and Jones, let me start with you first. In our preparation, you mentioned that organic wines have been flying off the shelves. Um, so uh, interesting to hear about that, um, but also your views generally on whether or not we need to bring together all these different standards that, that exist and, and approaches, uh, and perhaps whether or not a, a more unified approach might be helpful. And what do you think? So I think the very interesting part of that question uh, where I where I started from is um, would it be helpful to have a global certification? Yes, absolutely it would. Can we? That's that's the difficult bit. But I definitely think that the aspiration is that we should, as an industry, be looking at this. Um, as I mean, as a retailer of wines all around the world, like like Laura, we if we could have a consensus with, of a sort of a set of global sustainability principles it would be most welcome. And I think that's principally because there's such a myriad of certifications. Wine, you know, the, the joy of wine is that it comes from all over the world and it, it has so much diversity, but that is in itself, you know, a, a millstone around its neck. And actually to have some kind of clarity that we can then communicate to customers would, would I think, help everybody no end. Um, and as retailers, our customers expect us to do that work for them. 
Um, and that's why it's so wonderful to be part of this conversation and to have been part of it from the beginning, really. I think, you know, we, we're already involved with talking to our own different certification networks all around the world, whether it be New Zealand or whether it be California or if the new YGB work on sustainability. But actually to have some sort of guiding principles where those even recognised each other would, I think, be be hugely beneficial. I mean, I've looked at the work that Alco's done and it's, you know, it's hugely inspiring. But again, it, it's something that each of us as retailers can really only do in our own markets. Um, I don't want to take Laura's, Laura's thunder, so I suspect that she'll talk a little bit more about what she's done and the impact that it would have. But if we could have that at a global level with some degree of consistency, I mean, and I think as Simon mentioned in the last session, the key really is is how we take that um, confusing messaging and the definition of what sustainability even is. I mean, I suspect if, if we asked the question now of people how they would define sustainability, even even in this audience, we'd, we'd end up with hundreds of different um, definitions. And I suspect there'd be a quorum of, of four or five that come up with something similar, but everything else would be all over the place as to what it includes and doesn't include. And for me, it's a, a global certification would enable us to have a much clearer conversation with our customers. Is that long enough for you? Yeah, thank you. Fascinating. Um, quick question about regenerative. Regenerative is the buzzword of 2020 and next year. Um, but, you know, I, I could see your, see your expression there. You know, it could be just another eco label to confuse consumers. So, I mean, again, regenerative is criticised by not being standardised. I mean, regenerative organic certification in California has has a standard, but but lots of other approaches to regenerative don't really. So, I mean, wh what do you think when you hear that word? Anne? What do I think when I hear that word? I think, please, please start from the customer. What does the customer want to understand about sustainability? Um, and the fact that we haven't even managed to define sustainability and now we've got regenerative as well. I just don't think it's clear and comprehensible to customers as a concept. I mean, funnily enough, the only marks that you see in the world really that have gained customer traction are things that are very focused on one element of sustainability. So I don't know, the Rainforest Alliance, I mean, if you think of palm oil, you think about deforestation and that, that's got some traction because it's, it's defined. And I think, I think regenerative, again, it's such, it's such a laudable ambition but all, all at the moment, I just hear it hear it kind of confusing the conversation yet further. Thank you. I'm sure we'll come back to that. We have sessions specifically on that uh, later in the conference. Lara, let me let me come to you next. I mean, on the main point, you know, I'd love to hear your your views and any responses you or thoughts you might have on, on what Anne's been saying. So, Lara, over to you. Uh, yes, of course, quite a lot was already said, and of course, I'm very glad to hear that that uh, you knew already from before um, a little bit about our green choice. Um, now, of course, we did create it for the reason that no global one standard is there in place. And I have seen it very much um, in terms of trying to make it simple for the customer. So, so of course, like was all already mentioned before, in the web store, in the digital environment, there is a lot of space and time for us to tell about sustainability and, and, and for the customer to, to kind of spend time on thinking about it and finding out. But in the, in the, web, in the store, in the brick and mortar, um, it's basically a few seconds maybe that they think about it, typically what they're going to buy or not buy. And, and that is the moment when, when we need to be very simple and clear in the communication that what it is and 
meanwhile, while we are doing that, we there at the background, we need to know exactly what we are doing or, or kind of have the very good arguments why we have picked certain things. So, so our role as the retailer is to be the gatekeeper, if you will, in a way to, for this information. So we don't accept just anything that comes across, but we have, I hope, clear rules of what, what we then communicate forward to the Finnish customers and, and what we don't, don't do. So, so all this in the absence of that one global standard, but like was said already, I also see it as a very, very difficult and maybe time-consuming exercise if something like that would be started from scratch. So if, if and when um, such an attempt is made, I, I hope it will build on what is there already, because I also have deep respect for the, for the national organizations who have put a lot of effort into building the, the standards and certifications. And, and also I'm sure that a lot of compromises yeah. have been made. So it's not an easy job. I think that's my kind of two cents at this point. Thank you, lots more to talk about. Karen, let, let me come to you and let me ask you a question before you go into your, into, to your opening statement, if you don't mind. Um, a mutual friend of both of ours, I think, is Chris Willey, one of the founders of the Rainforest Alliance. And Chris often makes the point that as soon as we start talking about standards, we end up talking about certification rather too quickly. And his point is there's lots of great farm standards out there, like Rainforest Alliance started out being. And then the cart kind of got put before the horse with certification taking over. And, and that's what we focus on. Karen, is, is in your view, is, is that a problem? Do we focus too much on, on certification rather than farm standards? Well, well, it's funny you should ask, actually. I was going to talk about the benefit of creating a standard rather than the benefit of creating certification, right? Because that's not the, in a sense, the audit is just one way of checking on the standard. So, I mean, if you, if, if I can dive right in, actually, I, um, I, I'm going to answer that question. Um, I, I was going to start off by saying, you know, can the sector actually agree on a, on a definition of sustainability? And, and certainly the answer is yes. Um, you know, many other sectors have come together to do that. I mean, palm oil was mentioned earlier. I mean, in agriculture, you've got sugarcane, palm oil, soy, uh, aquaculture, um, and beyond agriculture, you've got a really wide range of sectors um, from forestry, the jewelry sector, the golf sector, who knew? Um, except the avid golfers, um, and then you know textiles and, and a, a really wide range of, of mining sectors and beyond. Um, and the benefit of coming together as a sector is just this point of developing a common understanding of sustainability for the sector. Um, and there's so many benefits of that far beyond certification. So building on existing standards, certainly with our good practices, we suggest you you start by understanding what's out there, what what is understood already, um, not duplicating what exists, but building on that. Um, and by coming together, it provides the sector opportunity to show leadership, but it also gives you a vision for change. Um, and it helps you understand the which, you know, which sustainability issues or impacts are the most important and identifying the changes needed in order to achieve those goals. Um, and when you do it together as a sector, you know, really working through uh, and agreeing on the key issues, um, that way you define best practices, 
you make the compromises needed to make something practical and meaningful for the sector. Um, and that process, it's, it's also a marketing process, right? It builds buy-in for the sector and ultimately then resulting in greater uptake of the practices and greater eventual positive impacts. So that, that standard or principles and criteria, call it what you like, right? Um, it provides a common framework. And with that framework, you can use it in many ways. So to your point about, is it about certification or is it about something else? That framework could be used as a benchmark for, um, well, as a benchmark for recognizing other standards. It could be used for capacity building. It could be used to build a certification program. It could be used to develop local interpretation um, and therefore ensure local applicability. Governments can reference it. We see this happening with other standards where a government will recognize the standard as its either baseline or aspiration for sustainability in a sector. Um, and those are all things that most of them don't actually require certification to be a benefit from, from coming together. So we do see in some sectors where there are elements of the sector that are interested in certification and other elements of the sector that want one of the other uses of this common framework for good practices. So I think actually that it's a real disservice to say certification um, when really it's about that common platform of understanding and agreement on what good practice is upon which you can build many different things. Um, if, shall, shall I go ahead, Toby? I have just a couple more quick points. Yeah, go ahead. Um, great, thanks. Um, many of the initiatives, many of the sectors I mentioned earlier have styled themselves as multi-stakeholder roundtables. And I want to mention this um, just a little bit in terms of why, you know, why is it important that a range of stakeholders should be involved? You know, this session today is primarily for the industry um, and, you know, who else might be, be interested or why should they be part of defining um, the, the good practices or the, or the standard. Um, when stakeholders are empowered to participate, their input really ensures that your sustainability objectives, whatever you agree on eventually, really reflect the issues that matter most. And, and it helps you consider all of the issues facing the sector. You know, not just the most convenient ones, um, but to also ensure that the challenging ones will be accepted by those that if eventually you do choose to do something like certification, you know, that you've covered the key issues. Um, and there's been quite some reference already to communications to consumers, you know, having a multi-stakeholder group behind you who's bought into this definition of sustainability helps to ensure, well, and then making a program that actually creates impact will help to ensure that you have sort of more honest, transparent communications to, um, to, your, to your end users. Um, so engaging the, the, the one last comment I guess I make is that, that we know that dealing with many of the issues in sustainability um, requires collaboration and a whole range of actors, that industry alone can't solve all of the challenges um, in, in terms of real sustainability changes. And that by bringing those actors on early in your process of defining the practice will also um, you know, give you a start to that collaboration. So building that um, network and buy-in for, for support for the sustainability changes that you need 
to create if you want to have positive impacts as an industry. Great. Thank you very much, Karen. Um, it certainly seems the wine industry has much to learn from other sectors who have been grappling with, I would argue, more difficult issues in many cases than, than the wine sector <laughs> over the last 15 years. You know, try if you think wine's difficult, try working in palm oil. <laughs> My word. Um, so uh, we have a session tomorrow morning where we have some experts from, from palm oil and other sectors um, who are going to reflect on what the wine industry can learn from other sectors to, to break out of the silo. You can, um, and in fact, that's not unique to the wine sector. Every sector has that same problem. You know, cocoa doesn't talk to coffee, coffee doesn't talk to cotton, and there are lots of barriers to be broken down there and lots of things to be learned. So thank you, Karen. David, last but by no means least, uh, what are your reflections on the question at hand and on what you've heard so far? Well, I agree with a lot of what everybody said. I think there is a need for a standard. And, and Toby, you know, as I, I always go back to two great examples of where standardization never worked and, and just think plugs and sockets, you know. So if you end up with plugs and sockets, you just end up with connectors and confusion and, and cost. And the food industry is notorious for that. You know, I started life in food. I went into consumer products, aerospace, automotive, and then medical devices, where they've got one standard, one audit recognized everywhere. And I think it's really important in the development of standards because you have a unified um, agreement of what good looks like. So can you imagine if we floated the hour, if everybody had their own hour, we had a 60-minute hour and a 50-minute hour and a 40-minute hour, we'd have an absolute disaster. So we can agree on the hour. Once we agree on the hour, the watchmakers can then go and design and differentiate accordingly to make different types of watches, but they're all 60-minute watches. So that's just a really, really basic um, thing. Now... The whole issue is sustainability at the moment, whether it's sustainability, soil, environment, regenerative agriculture, UN sustainability development goals. I think the planet has got to a tipping point where we agree that sustainability is a really important issue now. And we're moving from the thinking green, perhaps to the acting green. And, you know, this time it's really perhaps going to happen so having a definition is really important because you know as Anne said if I've got 20 agronomists and 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 experts in any industry together and got them to define sustainability I'd have anything from you know organics and biodynamics up to industrialized sort of agriculture and intensification and sort of everything in between so I think it's really really important when we develop standards to get it right. And, and this is something that, you know, BSI has been doing for 118 years. We are not the experts, we're the expert umpires. So we have a standard, which is called BS0, which is about the standards for standards, the principles of standardization, and PAS0, which is the principles for PAS standardization. Now, there's a lot of standards out there which are bad. There are some that are average and some are good, but it all gets back to setting up your stakeholders at the start with to make sure you're building from the bottom up with people in the industry. So you've got academia, you've got growers, you've got environmentalists, you've got science base, you've got retailers, you've got the whole supply chain there. And what BSI do there is we act as the umpire, right, to make sure everybody is educating everybody and we have something which is applicable and it's going to work in the industry. And you build it so it can be certified later. Because if you develop a standard that can't be certified later, then you end up with all sorts of problems and you can never migrate it to ISO. And if you can migrate it to ISO, well, then you have ratification with 165 countries around the world instantaneously. So getting the design right at the start is really, really important. And that's where a lot of people get it wrong. They try to do it themselves. They set up their own groups, their roundtables, 
they finally get there. But, you know, believe me, I've, I've, I've seen um, a lot in my life of standardization. I've also learned a lot. Um, and there are right ways and wrong ways of actually um, going about it. Um, so I think at, at, at the moment, you know, um, there's a lot happening in this space. Uh, Toby, as you know, you know, we talked about sustainable wine. We're looking at the sustainable red meat. Uh, we're currently developing standards for plant-based proteins for circular economy. Uh, we're looking at regenerative agriculture. Um, and we're also looking at that whole definition now of food equals pleasure. So pleasure means trust. It means taste. And it means meaning. What is the meaning behind the product? And what a standard enables people to do is to get the basics right and then around the basics differentiate, right, and give the meaning. And something like meaning, you know, wine, it can be heritage, it can be age, it can be growing methodology, it can be region, it can be variety. There's a lot of lovely attributes that people can wrap around their standards and differentiate their products and sell the product and the meaning, not the commodity. Um, and I think that's really important because we live in a world today where our farm numbers are halving every 10 years. Most farmers own the banks around 70% of their equity. Uh, uh, um, they only have around 30% equity. And the retailers are telling the world that, you know, cheap is best. Um, and if we just keep going for cheap is best and, and we want our farmers and our growers to have better regenerative agriculture, better topsoil management, better traceability, better animal welfare, better social responsibility, and we want it cheaper, it's not going to happen. And it can't happen. And that's why we're in the mess that we are now in terms of agriculture and regener regenerative agriculture is so important because we've got to get the land, we've got to get the process back to the way it was before. And to do that, we've got to have better prices for people so they can make profits and reinvest back into their people, their processes, their communities and into their land. So I think defining a standard is a excellent idea because it provides the basis to transform a commodity to a product and uh, um, you know, adopt good environmental choices um, um, with those stakeholders. David, <laughs> David, thank you much. Um, if you can go on mute, please, when you're not speaking, everyone, that would be great. Um, Anne, let me, let me come back to you. Um, the retailers in the UK uh, have been collaborating on issues like deforestation recently, you know, soy and other areas. So there is collaboration happening with with, with supermarkets on on sustainability issues. Do you think uh, Do you think that's possible, viable? Is it a good idea for supermarkets to collaborate on some kind of standard, or or might that end up with a UK standard and then we've got a German retail standard and then a Finnish retail standard, or or one without a monopoly? Um, what are your views on that, Anne? So my views on that are that absolutely retailers would want to collaborate, but there is, I, I would sense that, as, as you suggest, there's a risk if if one retailer leads, then it becomes something that is, uh, is, is a little bit too focused. Actually, where we probably want to get to is what David described, where there's, um, or I think actually Karen mentioned it as well, there's a kind of a round table which has all the relevant stakeholders and where we can be part of that conversation and ensure that we're representing our customers and that we are moving in the right direction for everybody. But actually we'd want to, I think all of us, all I mean, I can't obviously speak for my, my, my friends in our other supermarkets in the UK, but I suspect that we'd all want to be part of that conversation, but we'd ideally be feeding into a body that, um, that represents a, that, that, those global standards. 
whether that's certification or a standard is, is still, I think, to be debated. Thank you. Lara, would you agree with that? Uh, yes, I would. Uh, now, I think I have to ask, being the first one, can you hear me? <laughs> Yes, we can. <laughs> yes, because the video stopped working, but let's not let's not um, worry about that. Yes, so I, I do agree that the, the retailer should be represented um, some some suitable um, selection. Uh, and going back to what um, David said, I just need to point out that not all retailers are always going to for the lowest mm -hmm. price. So we are also mindful of the social aspects and the, the kind of living wage discussions and, and everything. But let's let's not spend yeah, too I would much say time to that as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So so we we try to improve. Uh, but uh, still even if I know this is the slot today for the standards, I just want to say say that yes, that absolutely is the, the founding and the kind of putting the basics in place. But after that for instance, for us, because we are so terribly far away from the vineyards and from the producers, we need to have some verification that the standard has been adhered to. And that's where the certification is just hugely important for us as, as professional buyers. And then we, we also can um, use that as the, the kind of communication channel towards the customers. Thank you. Quick uh, comment, please. If you're not a speaker, could you go on mute, please? Um, please, everybody on mute if you're not a speaker. Uh, that helps us all hear what we're, what we're talking about. Thank you very much. Um, interesting question from Jane Masters. Uh, let me put it to, to you, Lara, and then maybe everybody else can, can, can answer. Um, she's suggesting perhaps couldn't we start with, with bottle weight? Um, you know, there is a, perhaps an argument that says a bottle of wine under a certain price point shouldn't be in glass. But then on the other hand, you know, the glass industry this week launched a, a sustainability hallmark saying that they're the most sustainable option. So, you know, would we be better off starting with a particular issue that people are aware of, like bottle weight, or should we approach it more holistically from the beginning? Laura, what do you think? Uh, well, excellent that the bottle weight was brought into this discussion. I think, yes, we need to have it absolutely. And it is actually part of our green choices already but it is not part of the standards of the, the sustainability standards, apart from, I think, a, a very few ones of those. So it should be a part of the, the future global standard, I think, absolutely. And, and while we are waiting for it, we are, of course, hoping that it will become um, an element to the national current standards and certifications as well, because it starts to feel a bit funny to have a very sustainable product which comes in the heavy glass bottle. I think that was already said today. Thank you. And on the bottle uh, side, do you have a, a comment? I could talk about bottles for hours. Um, I think, um, I think um, what, what is, um, I've, I've heard a lovely quote once, which is, if you invented wine today, you would never put it in a 75 CL glass bottle. Um, however, it is... Um, it is what consumers expect currently. And I think we do need to be looking at alternatives. Um, and we can all see uh, different formats that are now starting to get some traction, um, but not enough in my view versus other, other categories, other, um, other different sectors in terms of packaging. But I do think it's going to be a, a long, slow piece of generational change. I think 
unfortunately everyone's waiting for one marvellous invention that's going to solve everything and I fear instead there's going to be a very long journey of fractional improvements as we as we as we improve both uh, bottles themselves but also move to alternatives and, and take customers with us on that journey. Do you see a time when you might restrict the bottle weight of wine that you sell? You know, because I, I bought a bottle of wine the other day and it weighed 1.6 kilograms with, you know, empty, which is the heaviest bottle I've ever come across. And I, I inquired as to how that came about. And it's because the guy who owns the winery is kind of old school. He thinks he thinks it's quality. It's his highest, you know, it's his highest, most premium wine. So he thinks it should be in a heavy bottle. But um, perhaps you know what we need, Toby. I think I think we need I think we need some global standards. <laughs> yes, we <laughs> global standard on bottle weight. Okay, good point. Um, Karen, let me before I turn to David. Karen, in, in your experience of of the standard setting um, that can can tackle these complex issues, is it better to start with a simple issue, or a, a single issue, rather than a simple issue such as bottle weight, or should we be more holistic from the beginning? What's what's your experience with the ICL? I think you need to be more holistic from the beginning. I think you really need to set out what the what the range of issues are, and and maybe you focus on the most important issues. But but just starting with one, um, I think you're going to end up wasting time actually, and um, and then running the risk of confusing consumers even more. Because if you do want to, con to communicate about that, are you just going to continue adding? one issue after another, um, or are you going to try to at least pick the, you know, the top issues um, and and go with those? I, I think that starting with one is a mistake. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. That's very interesting. Um, some of you may have noticed earlier this year, uh, briefly, Burger King launched a, a low methane burger and branded it for customers. And there was some amusement over, did it mean low methane for the customers or for the cows? Um, and you can't imagine your average Burger King customer engaging with the idea of a low methane burger on a menu. Very complex and perhaps a bit silly. Uh, David, uh, in your experience, what, what do you think about this? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question. And it's, uh, it just shows the importance that, you know, when you set up and, and, and get your stakeholders in there, Toby, um, there, there's a criteria for that to make sure they're there is then you set up a steering group and then you do the scoping exercise. So in this particular instance, you would most likely look at things like, okay, land, you know, what are, are the uh, uh, issues in land, you know, deforestation, land usage, you know, minimum till or whatever. Then you go into production, you know, the production process, which could be use of, you know, ag chemicals and, and what's acceptable and not acceptable. Then you go into the process itself of, of, of the winemaking. Then you go into packaging, and packaging, um, just going back to your question, could be looking at, you know, refills. So you can have heavy bottles, but if you're refilling them and using them time and time again, I mean, that's that's a different type of service. Your glass weight, your plastics, you know, corkage. Um, and then you go into retail, which is all about, you know, transport, retail. Um, so you develop a scope and you've got to work in each one of those things, land, production process, you know, packaging, retail, whatever else you want to put in that scope. And it's really important to get that scope right because, you know, sometimes you may be trying to boil the ocean and you've got to bring that scope back uh, to something that is realistic and achievable. And what we find is really useful is that because you can spend hours trying to determine what is actually sustainable. 
I think it's a lot better, and I use this quite often in, in, in some of the ones where I may be involved, is that we say, what is not sustainable? So you start off and say, what is not sustainable? What, what do we all agree is not in here? And if you do that, you're going to eliminate at least 70, 80% of your problems further on down the line. So that would be my um, advice as far as that's concerned. Thank you. Yes. Um, sometimes it's what's not said rather than what is said that is that is most relevant. Um, an interesting question from uh, Josep Ribas uh, for for you, Lara, and maybe um, Anne and the others would like to comment. Um, uh, Josep says these global standards need to rely on global certifications, EGISO, to ensure trust and credibility towards customers. Lara, what is your opinion on carbon neutral certifications? Uh, yes, uh, my opinion is that they also are needed, um, and one, one, once they are done right, of course, and uh, there also are already established um, um, actors from other, uh, with experience from, from many other industries, uh, and now I've seen that they have also entered the wine industry. So by doing right, I of course think of the correct and, and clear scoping and the fact that First, the emissions are reduced, and then whatever is remaining and cannot be reduced can be compensated with, of course, very, very kind of credible and additional ways. And then there is the certification that all this has been done correctly. So if all that is in place, then I'm very much in favor. And carbon labeling is making I remember when it first sort of kicked off about 15 years ago and, and Tesco announced they were going to carbon label 60,000 products. Then they realized how much a life cycle analysis cost per product and quickly backed away from it. But now 15 years later, we see Unilever talking about five shades of carbon for their products. Um, do you see a time, uh, do you think it would be a good idea to have grams of CO2 on a bottle, Laura? I mean, it, it, the, the initial problem with it was it was just another meaningless eco label and nobody knew what it meant. We still have that problem, don't we? Well, I also remember back in the day, about 10 or 15 years ago, the first attempts to do this. But I think now the consumers in general, they are so much more knowledgeable about this topic that I would even see that it might work. Okay, um, interesting. Um, Anne, what do you think about that? Could your, your customers... Get, grasp the carbon labels? I mean, I, I would struggle personally without a comparison. I don't quite understand how consumers would grasp what they mean. Uh, what do you think, Anne? So I would say that, I mean, I, I agree with Laura very much in as much as it would be a potentially a good thing. But um, coming back to your mention earlier of Tesco and costs, I think it's a very commercial world. And I think it needs to be looked at with a commercial hat on in some ways. We need to make sure that we're using uh, a top quality product that is worth it. I mean, if you Google carbon calculator now, I mean, the results go on forever. You just and there are some great ones out there that are, have got the right certification and are done to the right depth and the right level of detail. And then there are some that you wouldn't trust with a barge pole. And I think we as retailers have to be very clear that what we're telling our customers uh, is is honest and as factually correct as we can possibly be. And therefore, I think customers do understand uh, a lot more, but you're almost looking back to the kind of the traffic light system. It's almost like, is this good, bad or, or indifferent? Um, actually, the numbers themselves, there's, as you say, there's so much work in a life cycle analysis to get to those numbers and the customer doesn't actually want to know 
all of that detail. They just want to know, is this good, bad or indifferent? Um, and so I think it comes back to that that argument about how we communicate to customers. And I think as, a, as an industry, we're, we get a bit obsessed with badges um, and stickers and labels. And, uh, you know, there's only so much information you can put on a bottle. So there's something around um, how this is integrated into the broader conversation and then how we communicate at shelf and online. So is it one of those things that where the customer has that information if they want to go and find it, but putting it on every bottle, I think, is probably currently not practical. Yes, I just did an interview with uh, Hervé Bellon, who's the CEO of uh, Montrose, and I asked him about, um, they're doing uh, carbon capture from fermentation, which they're turning into potassium bicarbonate, and then trying to sell into the cosmetics and the uh, health food market. And I asked him, you know, would you tell your customers about it on the bottle? And he looked fairly horrified and said, absolutely not. Um, you know, our customers kind of expect us to be doing this. And if they want to know about it, we've got a beautiful story on our website. But there's no way I'm putting it on the bottle. It would take away the romance. It would be too technical and no one would understand it. Now, that makes sense for premium wine, because if you're buying Montrose, you're probably going to go and look at it because it's so expensive and such a great wine. You want to know more about it. But I suppose for the lower end wines, um, that, that's a real challenge. David, let me bring you in here. Uh, what are your reflections on, on the last 10 minutes or so? You know, I, I got sort of mixed opinions about carbon, Toby, because I was involved in that about 30 years ago when carbon capture came out there in forestry. And, you know, we had an army of people going out to look at carbon capture and, 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 and sustainability. And then you had the carbon futures and, and that was an absolute disaster. Um, but, you know, if I said to most people, what is carbon? People think it's toxic. It's poisonous. You know, it, it's 0.3 percent of the atmosphere. It's very, very important. And plants love the stuff, you know. And, and a lot of the times we're trying, you know, we're blaming cows for farting and methane and gas and, and, and carbon footprint where it's all part of a carbon cycle. You know, we live in this topsoil, basically, just recirculating topsoil. So that's fine. We should be focusing on fossil fuels. You know, the stuff we're digging out of the ground and pumping the atmosphere at a rate of change. That is a problem that we have with it. And as you said, you know, when Tesco went down this... Um, half year just before the global financial crisis and we're going to commit to um, carbon footprinting of every product and every tick company out there required a company that had you know carbon calculators and it all disappeared in four or five years because you know people wouldn't pay the difference and you ran into a lot of trouble you know you said we're not going to buy from Africa because the carbon footprint's too high so then you have a social dilemma there because you're not supporting um, um, local farmers and so forth so you got carbon you got social you got ethical you got modern day slavery there's too much in that mix at the moment. So I like to use a word like good environmental choices. And we've developed standards like that, you know, for building and construction products where you get a product, whether it's steel, concrete or whatever, which is a good environmental choice. It's the best choice in terms of low energy, low impact on the environment. Carbon neutral, people sort of get it, but you can play around with it, you know. So for me, it's fought with danger, but it is a good indicator for... Um, you know, less energy intensive um, processes and productions in that product. Now, having said that, there are standards already. There's a PASS 2050 for carbon uh, uh, products. Um, there's ISO uh, 14064 um, for uh, carbon cycle. And, and there's also PASS 2060 for carbon emissions and, and neutrality. So before anyone goes off and... Uh, develops another standard, there are already standards uh, for calculating um, 
carbon for product specifics and for your you know supply chain thank you david can i comment on this oh sure Karen. before you do karen can i just yeah. ask everyone yet again if you are not speaking please press the mute button this is not rocket science people please press the mute button if you're not speaking thank you very much karen Thanks. I, I um, just wanted to mention that this is, an, I think, an excellent example of where having a roundtable um, is really useful because it may be that labeling doesn't make sense right now. And it may be the kind of topic that's even difficult to include in a standard right now. But having a roundtable or a platform to work together on sustainability means that you can actually look at this topic or a topic like, like carbon or climate over time. Um, so one of our members is Textile Exchange, and they work in the wide range of fibers in the textile uh, supply chain. And they've just set a goal of, you know, carbon 2030, and they've got their whole industry, um, their members at least, several thousand of them, looking at what, what all of the, you know, understanding the wide range of carbon impacts in their sector and looking at the different range of interventions they need to, to improve them. Um, it isn't included in their standard right now. That will be something that comes over time. So, you know, I think living wage was mentioned earlier, another example where it may be difficult to overnight guarantee it, but you might wanna to work towards it as a sector or some people might wanna to work towards it in the sector. And having that platform to work together enables you to not just do the standard setting, but also look at the broader range of sustainability issues that might be difficult to achieve today, but you might want to work towards in the medium term. Thanks very much. Um, some really interesting comments on the chat function. Um, one mentioning ISO 26000, just a clarification on that. ISO 26000 is, of course, a guidance standard. It's not certifiable, partly because of the politics of social responsibility um, standardization. Um, but not going down that particular rabbit hole, let me, um, let me take the last 10 minutes and let's talk practical steps. Um, I will ask our two kind of wine experts to talk about what they think should be the next steps from here to make something happen. We've seen, and then I'll ask Karen and David as sort of more broader experts on, on what they would do next as consultants, uh, if, if they're advising us on what to do. Um, you know, there's been mention of OIV, the Organization of Wine and Vine. We did look at their work in advance of this conference. They, hadn't seemed to, they didn't seem to have done very much for a number of years. Um, and they offered to come and give us a long PowerPoint presentation, which we declined. Um, so I, I do wonder whose job it is and whether or not it needs this group to perhaps to work together to try and make this happen. Um, but I'd love to get, get views on sort of practical sense of what could happen next. So, um, Lara, let me, let me turn to you. Um, ideal world, what would you like to see happen next to try and put what we've been discussing into action, given that we're all in violent agreement? Yes, I'm. I'm sure I can't name who would be the correct correct people to participate in the effort, but maybe OIV is one place to look at, and and like like we discussed to to have um, attendance from the different um, parts in the the value chain in the sector, maybe even even customers could be represented one way or other. Um, the next steps I would really, really hope that this work would go forward and also to, to kind of bring in the 
couple of new elements that we discussed, which is the packaging, and then strengthen some that we have now seen and have even, even studies made um, some elements that are not maybe as strong today as, as should be as a result, for instance, to the climate crisis. And then the, here I refer to, for instance, water, uh, water um, criteria in the standards, how water is managed and how it is, is saved and, and all, all that in the water scarce regions, especially. So there are certain things that are very well established, I think, in the current you know, diverse standard um, landscape. But then while we are doing the global core or whatever we choose to call it, we also need to remember that the existing bits need to be developed at the same time. Thank you, Anne. Yeah, so... I agree with Lara. No, absolutely agree. I mean, I think in terms of next steps, to be really practical, I think the next step is unfortunately quite boring. But I think what we what we need to do, um, and when I say we, this is the royal we, so the question is who who would move this forward? But we need a really good analysis of all the current schemes, regulations and guidance that is out there globally. Um, and then to look at who the most important players are in order to make sure that the right people are around the table. So whether that's, as, as Lara said, retailers, customers, all the different parts of the value chain. Um, but actually, I think we need to be understanding where we have consensus and where we have divergence um, in the different areas. So whether that be water, because there will be differences depending on where in the world uh, schemes are, so that then we can start to see what tolerances might be required for a global consensus. Um, so I think the next point really is some some is some major major data analysis, to be honest. Um, and that includes, I mean, I've been looking at some of the questions on the chat, and that that will include engaging with um, people who already have this as a goal and making sure that it's it's linked in at a global level with the with the rights, the right people who can give us the support potentially and potentially who could also create, collate some of that data for us. Thank you very much. Uh, very sensible, Anne. Uh, that certainly sounds like the right way to go. Um, let me turn to uh, to Karen now. Karen, uh, the wine industry has hired you as a consultant, let's imagine, to uh, to advise on what we do next. Uh, so what do we do? Yeah, I actually think that Anne's got a really good start there. I think I would add to that, um, you know, obviously identifying who's going to be your driver, right, at, at, you know, to, to get it going off the ground. Um, I think you need objectives for what you want to achieve um, through a standard or your roundtable or whatever it is you're developing. Um, and, and then go and do your mapping, as, as Anne said, understand what else is out there, what, um, you know, do they already meet your objectives? Um, or do you modify your objectives based on what's out there already? Um, you know, being clear that you are an, an added value to what exists already rather than duplicative is an important part of what we consider to be good practice. Um, and, you know, and then I think you've got tons of experts out there in the world. Um, ISIL has a code of good practice on standard setting. So, you know, we give guidance on things like understanding your theory of change. What, what do you want to achieve and how are you going to get there? Uh, doing stakeholder mapping and bringing stakeholders together. Um, transparency, governance. Um, those are things to think about. But I think that starting point that, um, that Anne has laid out and, and with that, um, being clear on what it is you're trying to achieve, at least as a starting point, even if you modify it over time. Um, and then mapping your stakeholders and starting to bring them together. 
little by little and then expanding. Karen, thank you. Very sensible. Uh, David, probably the last word to you. Um, you might not make all the rules, but as, as, as an umpire of these things, what would your advice be on how we go forward from here? Bearing in mind, of course, the wine industry is not like some of the others that you and I work in, you know, where there are five or six big companies that dominate. You know, I think the world's largest wine brands put together, someone told me a less than 10% of, of global global sales, I believe. I'm sure others here can correct me if that's wrong. But there isn't the sort of oligopoly that you see where Unilever comes in and says, right, we're 5% of palm oil. Here's what we want to do. And everybody pays attention. So bearing that in mind, David, how do we, uh, how do we tackle the challenge and move forward? David, are you with us? Have we lost David? I wondered if he was paused in thought there for a second. No, I was. Uh, I had it on mute because you know I was uh, um, uh, listening to you before, so I put it on mute. But uh, no, Toby, what I was saying is, I think you, you know this session that that we're very happy to uh, uh, sponsor with you is a really good first start where you've brought together stakeholder communities here to have these discussions. So this is a right start, right? Um, this is something that I uh, certainly have got on my roadmap, along with uh, regenerative agriculture and, and sustainable beef, as you know, when, you know, wine is uh, um, an important topic where we think there's an opportunity. And, and the way that we would do this is that we, we give it to our research team and the research team would scour the world and do domain research to see what's already out there. Because the whole idea of stand, standardisation is to identify the best practice principles and guidelines that are already out there. So we're using that as seed documents to actually build on, right? Then we bring together what we call the stakeholder group. So the stakeholder group can be a combination of sponsors and people that want to be engaged in the process. Now, that's really important. And there is a standard and a process to doing that to ensure you have balance, right? So you don't have some, just one person pushing everything through, but you've got a good balance of stakeholders, NGOs, land, you know, packaging, science and, 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 and academia and, and, and sort of industry. And then you, you get the sponsorship, you establish the steering group. The steering group is around um, 10 people maximum that's selected from that group. They start drafting that goes through a number of uh, uh, drafts and then there is a um, um, review committee and the review committee can be up to 200. It can be a lot more um, uh, people involved in that process. They don't have the time to be involved in the standardization process and the documentation. But they're quite happy to be involved in the actual review process. So they review, the feedback goes there, there's another draft. It's then put up for public comment and then it goes to publication. And it's built and designed in a way where everybody right, can actually have access to this, so whether it's in training, whether it's in implementing the principles and guidelines, and you would develop the standard. You know, the modern way of developing these standards is not just like a standard, but there's a standard as a guideline. So you write a standard and then you say, what is the output? Because, you know, consumers are interested in outputs and guarantees. We don't just want complex standards with lots of documentation. We've got to keep it very, very simple. Um, so we have to be careful in, in terms of design and, and, and the outputs. And, you know, that's what I would do. That is the process. As I said, there is a, a standard for standards, principles and standardization, and, and PASS zero, which is principles of PASS standardization. So, you know, these are best practice guidelines to follow, um, which means that, you know, they're designed with 
the proper sort of consensus building process from bottom up with industry experts engaged in the process. David, thank you. Very, very solid practical advice. And we're out of time for this session, but the debate will continue uh, where we move into discussing certification. I know it's an overlapping Venn diagram between the two. Um, and I'm looking forward to the next session in about five minutes. Two quick points before we take a quick break. Firstly, uh, we're working on a kind of draft white paper on how to take this process forward. Um, we at Sustainable Wine sort of see ourselves as perhaps a, a platform for dialogue as, as, as some sort of catalyst or convener. We, we're not quite clear on our role exactly, but we know that we can connect people and we can have these conversations. So we're looking to see what we can do next. And these sessions will inform that paper, which we will circulate to you all afterwards. Uh, secondly, the mention here of the SDGs. Uh, of course, the SDGs are a key part of any guidance or roadmap. You know, they look incredibly confusing and, and, uh, and difficult to understand because there's so, so many of them. They encompass everything, but they are a great guidance. So, of course, they would be included, I think, in anything that was done here. Right. We are out of time. Um, thank you so much, David, Anne, Laura, Karen. Fantastic insight. Thank you, audience. Great questions. So uh, thank you all. And uh, we'll see you in five minutes.